Hello, and welcome to the turbulent world of Middle East soccer, or Middle East soccer podcast. I'm your host, James Dorsey. Many in Asia look at the Middle East with a mixture of expectation of stable energy supplies, hope for economic opportunity, and concern about a potential fallout of the region's multiple violent conflicts that are often cloaked in ethnic, religious, and sectarian terms. Yet, a host of Asian nations, led by men and women, who redefine identity as concepts of exclusionary civilization, ethnicity, and religious primacy, rather than inclusive pluralism and multiculturalism, risk sowing the seeds of radicalization rooted in the despair of population groups that are increasingly persecuted, disenfranchised, and marginalized. Leaders like China's Xi Jinping, India's Narendra Modi, and Myanmar's Win Myint and Aung San Suu Kyi, alongside nationalist and supremacist religious figures, ignore the fact that crisis in the Middle East is rooted in autocratic and authoritarian survival strategies that rely on debilitating manipulation of national identity on the basis of sectarianism, ethnicity, and faith-based nationalism. A bird's-eye view of Asia produces a picture of a continental landscape strewn with minorities on the defensive, whose positioning as fully-fledged members of society with equal rights and opportunities is either being eroded or severely curtailed. It also highlights a pattern of responses by governments and regional associations that opt for a focus on preemptive security, kicking the can down the road, and or silent acquiescence, rather than addressing a wound head-on that can only fester, making cures ever more difficult. To be sure, multiple Asian states, including Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, the Philippines, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and India, have at various times opened their doors to refugees. Similarly, the Disaster Management Unit unit of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN, has focused on facilitating and streamlining repatriation of Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. But a leaked report by the unit, AHA Center, in advance of last June's ASEAN summit, was criticized for evading a discussion on creating an environment in which Rohingya would be willing to return. The criticism went to the core of the problem. Civilizationalist policies, including cultural genocide, isolating communities from the outside world, and discrimination will at best produce simmering anger, frustration, and despair, and at worst, migration, militancy, and or political violence. A Uyghur member of the Communist Party for 30 years who did not practice his religion, Enwan Niazi, would seem to be the picture-perfect model of a Chinese citizen hailing from the northwestern province of Xinjiang.
Yet, Mr. Niazi was targeted in April of last year for re-education. One of at least a million Turkic Muslims interned in detention facilities where they are forced to internalize Xi Jinping thought and repudiate religious norms and practices in what constitutes the most frontal assault on our faith in recent history. If past efforts, including an attempt to turn Kurds into Turks by banning use of Kurdish as a language that sparked a still ongoing low-level insurgency, is anything to go by, China's ability to achieve a similar goal with greater brutality is questionable. Most Uyghur men my age are psychologically damaged. When I was in elementary school, surrounded by other Uyghurs, I was very outgoing and active. Now, I feel like I have been broken. Quality of life is about feeling safe, said Alim, a young Uyghur, describing to a writer who focuses on the Uyghurs arrests of his friends and people trekking south to evade the repression in Xinjiang cities. Traveling in the region in 2014, an era in which China was cracking down on Uyghurs, but that predated the institutionalization of the re-education camps, the writer encountered the trauma people experienced in the rural Uyghur homeland that was acute. It followed them into the city, hung over their heads, and affected the comportment of their bodies. It made people tentative, looking over their shoulders, keeping their heads down. It made them tremble and cry. There is little reason to assume that anything has changed since for the better. On the contrary, not only has the crackdown intensified, Fear and uncertainty is spread to those lucky enough to live beyond the borders of China. Increasingly, they risk being targeted by the long arm of the Chinese state that has pressured their host countries to repatriate them. Born and raised in a Rohingya refugee camp in Bangladesh, Rahima Akhtar, one of the few women to get an education among the hundreds of thousands who fled what the United Nations described as ethnic cleansing in Myanmar, saw her dreams and potential as a role model smashed when she was this month expelled from university after recounting her story publicly. Mrs. Akhtar gained admission to Cox's Bazaar International University on the strength of graduating from a Bangladeshi high school, a feat she could only achieve by sneaking past the camp's checkpoints, hiding her Rohingya identity, speaking only Bengali, dressing like a Bangladeshi, and bribing Bangladeshi public school officials for a placement. Mrs. Akhtar was determined to escape the dire warnings of UNICEF, the United Nations Children Agency, that Rohingya refugee children risked becoming a lost generation. Mrs. Akhtar's case is not an isolated incident, but part of a refugee policy in an environment of mounting anti-refugee sentiment. 
that threatens to deprive Rohingya refugees who refuse to return to Myanmar unless they are guaranteed full citizenship of any prospects. In a move that is likely to deepen a widespread sense of abandonment and despair, Bangladeshi authorities, citing security reasons, this month ordered the shutting down of mobile services and a halt to the sale of SIM cards in Rohingya refugee camps and restricted internet access. The measures significantly add to the isolation of a population that is barred from traveling outside the camps. Not without reason, Bangladeshi Foreign Minister Abul Kalam Abdul Monim has blamed the international community for not putting enough pressure on Myanmar to take the Rohingyas back. The UN should go to Myanmar, especially the Rakhine state, to create conditions that could help these refugees go back to their country. The UN is not doing the job that we expect them to do, Mr. Abdul Momin said. The harsh measures are unlikely to quell increased violence in the camps and continuous attempts by refugees to flee in search of better pastures. Suspected Rohingya gunmen last month killed a youth wing official of Bangladesh's ruling Awami League party. Two refugees were killed in a subsequent shootout with police. The plight of the Uyghurs and the Rohingya repeats itself in countries like India, with its stepped-up number of mob killings that particularly target Muslims, threatened stripping of citizenship of close to two million people in the state of Assam, and unilateral cancellation of self-rule in Kashmir. Shiite Muslims bear the brunt of violent sectarian attacks in Afghanistan and Pakistan. In Malaysia, Shiites, who are a minuscule minority, face continued religious discrimination. The Islamic Religious Department in Selangor, Malaysia's richest state, this week issued a sermon that amounts to a mandatory guideline for sermons in mosques, warning against the spread of Shia deviant teachings in this nation. The Muslim Ummah, or community of the faithful, must become the eyes and ears for the religious authorities when stumbling upon activities that are suspicious, disguising under the pretext of Islam, the sermon said. Malaysia, one state where discriminatory policies are unlikely to spark turmoil and political violence, may be the exception that confirms the rule. Ethnic and religious supremacism in major Asian states threatens to create breeding grounds for violence and extremism. The absence of effective attempts to lessen victims' suffering by ensuring that they can rebuild their lives and safeguard their identities in a safe and secure environment allows wounds to fester. Putting, permitting Mrs. Akhtar, the Rohingya University student, to pursue her dream would have been a low-cost, low-risk way of offering Rohingya youth an alternative prospect, and at the very least a reason to look for constructive ways of reversing what is a future with little hope. Bangladeshi efforts to cut off opportunities 
in the hope that Rohingya will opt for repatriation have so far backfired, and repatriation under circumstances that do not safeguard their rights is little else than kicking the can down the road. Said human rights advocate Evelina Ochab, it is easy to turn a blind eye when the atrocities do not happen under our nose. However, we cannot forget that religious persecution anywhere in the world is a security threat to everyone, everywhere. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. A written version of this podcast is on my blog, The Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer, at mideastsoccer.blogspot.com. Please join me for my next podcast in the coming days. All the best and take care.